Hello out there and welcome to Six Ways to Sunday. I'm Kara Henderson-Sneed along with my husband and the Rams general manager, Les Sneed. And we call it Six Ways to Sunday, this podcast about the NFL, Les, because we like to say that if there are all these other people out there talking about the X's and O's, we're talking about the other 24 letters, all the different things that go into making an NFL franchise great. Oh, no doubt. We're always trying to get to, to how do we get to from A to Z? And it, it, there's a lot that goes into it. Uh, we, we get to see, we get to feel, we get to cheer, we get to do a lot of things with the X's and O's as they come to life on Sundays. But it does, it does take uh, many other letters, many other days, many other months to get to those Sundays. So the first episode we had, we talked about leadership, which is obvious in your job. The other thing, which is really the cornerstone of what you do, is decision-making, which is what we wanted to talk to uh, somebody about today. Well, you, you've heard me say this. I say it to you all the time. We're, we're trying to predict the future. And, and as a general manager, you're uh, always collaborating uh, with uh, the staff, with basically the entire building to uh, – come up with a way to better predict what might happen in the, in the future. And, and we don't get to do uh, Monday morning, Monday morning QBs, uh, QBing. We don't get the hindsight, but there is some ways to use hindsight. There's many ways to try to improve decision-making uh, by reading many, many books. We're going to talk to one of the authors today and how uh, us as an organization, myself as a general manager, goes into improving uh, those decisions that and the processes that we use uh, to make those decisions. Yeah, we have lots of books that we read, lots of authors that we stock. This one is one of your favorites. Annie Duke was getting her PhD in cognitive psychology when she made a decision that seemed to play out quite well. She became a professional poker player. Millions of dollars, several World Series of poker titles later, she decided that she was going to combine these two things together, psychology and poker, and what emerged was a best-selling book called Thinking in Bets, which is one of Les's favorite. Her book shows you how you can use the psychology of betting strategy to make decisions better in work and in life. And she's recently followed that book with a great companion book called How to Decide, Simple Tools for Making Better Choices. I'm going to say without reservation that these books can change your life and it can also change how you think about the decisions that are made every day in the NFL. Here's part one of our conversation with Annie Duke. This was the reason I started thinking about this podcast because I would read these amazing books and it seemed like almost inevitably there would be a chapter about the NFL in it. And so here I am, I open up Thinking in Bets and the first chapter for Rams fans, you're going to love this, is about the fact that oh, I don't know, the Seattle Seahawks in Super Bowl 49. I know all of us with 26 seconds left, down four points facing the Patriots or thinking on the second down at the one-yard line, oh, they're going to hand it off to Marshawn Lynch. They should hand it off to Marshawn Lynch, and they didn't hand it off to Marshawn Lynch. It got intercepted, and the Patriots went in the Super Bowl, and everybody after that play says, of course, of course, they made the bad decision. But Annie, you say... No. Explain. Yeah. So, okay. So it's, it's, let's just do a simple thought experiment. Imagine that he can't, he decides to call this pass play 
26 seconds left. It's second down, as you said, one yard to go. Um, and it gets caught for the game-winning touchdown. Are, is anybody saying this guy's the biggest idiot? I mean, I, and I want to make clear, there were headlines that actually called it the worst play call in NFL history. That's big how publications, speaks. like USA Today yes. kind of big headlines. That right? was actually from USA Today. Was that the worst play call in NFL history? I mean, most of them walked it back to like, uh, was it the worst play call in Super Bowl history? <laughs> Which is still like, really? Um, so let's just do the thought experiment. Imagine it was it was caught for a touchdown. Do you see those same headlines? Are they like, yeah, they won, but that was the worst play call in NFL history? It's like, it, it takes one second to realize, no, that's absolutely not. So this is something called, this is a decision error that's called resulting. Um, and basically, you can think about it this way. Trying to figure out what the quality of a decision is, like a play call like that. And we can walk through how complicated it is in a second, uh, lest you obviously know this because you, you're dealing with this all the time, and Kara, you too. Um, Trying to figure out what the quality of a decision is, that's, that's actually really hard. Mo most things aren't like, did you go through a green light or a red light, where it's like totally obvious whether it's a good decision or not. Most things are actually quite complicated. So what we do, and this is where a lot of like cognitive biases, a lot of decision errors come from, is we make this substitution. We substitute something that's really easy to judge in place of the thing that's hard to judge. And in this particular case, that would just be what was the quality of the outcome, right? Did it get intercepted or not? We, well, we can see that with our own eyes. That's actually quite easy for us to see. And so basically what happens is when it gets intercepted, we say, oh, that must have been a terrible decision. And when it gets uh, caught for the game-winning touchdown, then it's, oh, that must have been a brilliant decision. But we know on any one try, that's actually not the way that like decisions work. It's, you make a decision, Pete Carroll decides, okay, he's going to call, call for Russell Wilson to pass the ball. And then there's a set of possible outcomes. One is, you know, we'll, we'll put away like sacks and, you know, fumbles and things like that, because that, that's going to be true whether you give it to Marshawn Lynch or not. So let's talk about the things that can happen specifically from the pass. And we know that's going to be game-winning touchdown, incomplete pass, and interception. And that those just have some probability of happening. In the same way that if I flip a coin, there's some probability of heads or tails, there's some probability of each of those things. Now, what happens is we kind of forget that all three of those things are possible once we see what actually happens, right? We see that it was intercepted. So there's a few things that we can do in order to figure out whether it was a good decision or not. But we have to go back and do some work. This is why this is hard. So the first question that would be really good to know is, well, what's the chances of an interception there? Because that tells us a lot about, I mean, there's no question, if there was a 60% chance of an interception in that situation, I would agree it was a terrible decision. But what if that's not the case? What if it's a lot lower? So, I mean, you, you obviously know what, what's the chance of an interception in that situation. Okay, so let's, let's all read from your book. Out of 66 passes attempted from an opponent's one-yard line during the season, zero had been intercepted. In the previous 15 seasons, the interception rate in that situation was about 2%. So this was a very, very low probability outcome that occurred. Right. So, you know, that's like, that's like the first clue that maybe it wasn't such a bad choice was you got a really unlikely thing hap happening here. You know, it was a little bit like you flipped a coin and it landed on its edge. 
and oh, are you an idiot for calling heads? I don't know. But we can even make it, we can even talk about why it's an even better decision. Because like if people will remember there was a clock management problem. So 26 seconds left on the clock, it's second down. That gives you three possibilities to try to get the ball into the end zone. But the problem is that Pete Carroll only had one timeout. So this is obviously a really big problem because now we can go through the thought experiment. If he hands the ball off to Marshawn Lynch and Marshawn Lynch fails to score, which just FYI will happen 80% of the time. I mean, I know Marshawn Lynch is great, but he's great midfield. Like people, you know, as you know, they're not so, when you compress the field like that, when you're down on the one yard line, it's just harder for even Marshawn Lynch to, to break through. Everybody's piled into the same place. It's just hard. So I Very think- yeah, so I think he's successful in that situation about 20% of the time, as I recall. You can check in my book just to double check me. But so, so he's mostly going to fail. But so when he fails to do that, what happens to the clock? It's going to keep running. Unless it's, you it's, call a timeout. Unless you call a timeout. Right. So now he's got to, Pete Carroll's going to have to burn his timeout, right? So he's got to burn his timeout. And then if you hand it off to Marshawn Lynch again, that's your last play of the game. So if he fails, he's gonna, you know, that's it. You don't get another try. But what we know is that when you fail to complete a pass in the normal way, meaning it just, you know, it's, it doesn't get intercepted. You just don't, it's an incomplete pass. We know that the clock stops. So now what we see is this whole other aspect of the decision, which is if you call a pass play on either first, uh, on either second or third down, because we're starting this on second down, on either second or third down, and I literally, I don't care which, if you call it on one of those two downs, you're going to get an extra play. You're going to get a third attempt at the end zone. Because now you can, you know, if it doesn't succeed, mostly you get to just have the clock stop very, very quickly. Then you can hand it off to Marshawn Lynch. If he doesn't succeed, you can use your timeout. You can hand it off to Marshawn Lynch again. Or you can hand it off to Marshawn Lynch, burn your timeout, go for the pass play. If it's not successful, clock stops, and you can still hand it off to Marshawn Lynch. So, like, I don't have any disagreement about whether you'd want to hand it off to Marshawn Lynch twice. That's that's your job, Les, not mine. I don't know. <laughs> like, we'll, we'll, let, we'll put that on the head coach, right? Right. Like that's right. So I, like, I, I don't, I, but I don't need to have an opinion about that because I can, I can just, I can just concede that, that you would like Marshawn Lynch to, to go for it twice. But what I do know just as a, as a matter of logic is that if I have three attempts to get it past the Patriots defense rather than two, that I'm way better off. So then you can just ask yourself, okay, but the, the cost of trying to get that third down, that third attempt, is whatever the interception rate is. That's what the cost of that is. And it's less than 2% of the time that's going to get intercepted. And then you can see like the stuff about like, oh, is the worst play in Super Bowl history and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, it's, this is just resulting. But this is something that really plagues our decision-making all across the board, you know. And it makes, it makes it very, very hard to learn from experience. The interesting thing in your book, because uh, I used to uh, basically butcher – life by saying, hey, life is chess. Make sure you're not playing connect four. But on a very superficial, superficial, shallow level, now I say, okay, life is really poker and poker because chess is so structured and poker being there's an element of luck involved, just like life, bad luck. If you break that play down, the interesting thing is, and I forget which receiver it was, but in those type of plays, there's going to be some type of pick play run 
and uh, the uh, the Seattle receiver uh, didn't run the best angle yep. to make the if right. he, so there's an element of bad luck there. Whatever I mean, happened from Pete Carroll's perspective, that is totally a matter of bad luck. There, there's bad kind luck. of two things you make. Two, yeah. Yeah. There's two things that happen that Pete Carroll can't know is going to happen. One is that it's a broken formation. Um, and like, you can't, how are you supposed to, what does that have to do? I mean, obviously Pete Carroll's the head coach. Like you don't want a broken formation, but like that it happens. The other is that Belichick was actually practicing a particular play. But here's the thing about that, because one of the important things about judging someone's decision quality is that, so it's not just luck that's, that's a point, like does this 2% thing happen, right? Which, because we know that that's what the probability of that is. It's also that you can't judge somebody's decision quality unless you judge what they knew at the time. So with most types of decisions, what will happen is that there's a whole bunch of stuff that you knew before the fact. This is actually much more explored in how to decide than thinking in bets. But there's things that you knew before the fact, and then there are things that will reveal themselves after the fact. So we can separate those two things. And one of the problems that we have besides resulting, which is just not seeing this luck, right, just as pretending as if luck didn't exist, is that we have this thing called memory creep where we'll take things we knew before the fact, after the fact, rather, and we'll sort of, they'll creep into our memory of before the fact as if either we knew them or we should have a, a, some sort of expectation that, that the person who was the decider should know them. So in this particular case, there is something that revealed itself after the fact that's really important, which is that Bill Belichick was practicing that play with Mal Malcolm Butler, that particular coverage. He was practicing that. Now, here's the important thing to remember about that, is that he'd been practicing it all season, but he had never once used it. So there's no tape. Nobody's seen this particular defensive play. Nobody's seen this run. So now we have to say, okay, yes, we see that this happened after the fact that Malcolm Butler was right there. So it all looks obvious that, oh, well, Pete Carroll should have known somehow that this play was in the back pocket of the New England Patriots and that Malcolm Butler was going to be right where the ball was. Except that Bill Belichick had been practicing it secret and never run it. Right. So so, there's, there, so the evil yeah. genius continues is what yeah we're, we're exactly like absent some sort of omniscience on Pete Carroll's part we should have no expectation that he knows this beforehand but what's interesting is that you know one of the things that I think about with these types of biases is that they're a lot like visual illusions you can't unsee it so you cannot see the outcome is what you're saying Right. right. And so it's interesting because one of the things that happens is that I'll get up in front of these groups and I'll explain, I'll go through this whole, you know, the, the decision and everything. And that Malcolm Butler thing gets said to me every single time. Yeah, but it was a really bad decision because the Patriots had an answer to it. And, and the, because what happens is that it's so strong, this idea that he had to make a mistake and that obviously if it's losing the Super Bowl, it has to be the biggest mistake ever. Right. It's so strong that we come up with rationalizations for it. And one of those rationalizations is this hindsight bias problem that we all know that Malcolm Butler was running this particular uh, defensive play and, and that somehow Pete Carroll clearly should have had foreknowledge that this play existed. Except, so my response is always, yeah, well, you should go read about it because it turns out that was all secret because he'd never run it in a game up until that point. He pulled it out just for that moment. So I don't know. How's, how's Pete Carroll supposed to know about it? Yeah, but we really come up good. with these justifications. 
Yeah, because the, their their offensive staff would be designing plays in that situation, looking at all at that point you have every game Seattle's played this year, and you know exactly what type of coverages they're gonna run in the red zone or inside the five, and you design plays for those coverages to beat those coverages in, in the element of where people talk about the chess match, which is right. obviously wrong, more poker match. The the Interesting and maybe the most intriguing thing about this is we're talking about, think about this, New England Patriots, Seattle Seahawks, uh, uh, Pete Carroll, Bill Belichick, maybe two Hall of Famers, Russell Wilson, uh, Marshawn Lynch, Tom Brady's on the sideline. Uh, there is a undrafted free agent from West Alabama, a Division II school uh, in Livingston, Alabama. I know that because I grew up in Alabama, right? And he ran probably a 4740 on his pro day. No team, not even the New England Patriots, drafted Malcolm Butler, right? He was signed as a college free agent after the draft. And and what's the most intriguing thing, and I think one of the that's unsung in that story is not only did Malcolm Butler make that play, but not only did Bill Belichick and his staff actually have the courage to have Malcolm Butler in on that play and uh, and the the foresight to let's call it not necessarily drafting but signing him after the draft and then and train and developing which you don't always see but we're gonna and yeah. we're gonna talk about that in a couple of minutes because we when we get into uh, draft day uh, the concept of throwing darts which I know with your archer's mindset these are all teases for what we're gonna talk about a little yeah. bit later that she's going to love your concept of throwing darts and Malcolm yeah. Butler would be considered a dart, right? Like, yeah. Hey, you know, no downside and potentially a lot of upside. So we'll get into that. Well, I actually want to key in on what, what, what you just said, Les, because I think that this is a big difference between poker and chess. That's really important, which is in poker, uh, both parties can be making great decisions, but that's actually not true in chess. So, so, and I'll explain what I mean. So when we think about this resulting problem, right? Like the substitution we do for the, where we take the outcome and we figure out the decision quality. The reason why life isn't very much like chess is because resulting isn't a mistake in chess. So, so like Kara, if, if Les and I play a chess match and you literally don't see a single move that we make, all, all that happens is Les comes and says, like, I kicked Danny's butt. You know that Les had to make better decisions than I did. You, you actually don't need to see any of the moves. And, and the reason for that is that, that these problems that we've been talking about, both of them don't exist. There isn't a strong influence of luck, in the, not in the sense that like, you know, someone rolls dice and if you get a seven, you get an extra queen and snake eyes, it's just like checkmate, you lose the game or anything like that. Like the, the pieces are only going to move by an active skill of the other player. And then the other thing is there's no hidden information. Like this issue of he's never seen that, Pete Carroll's never seen that play run. He can look at all the tape from that season and he's not going to see that play because it doesn't exist on tape because it hasn't been run. So it's totally hidden from view, from his perspective. In chess, that's not the case. You can see all the pieces. So you can work out like if I move here, then less, here's all of the ways that less can move. And then I could move all these ways back and so on and so forth. And so chess is very complicated, but it's not complex. And there's a difference between the two. In other words, in chess, it's kind of a computing power problem. Like, the decision tree gets very complicated because there's a lot there's a lot of options 
but there's no, the randomness, this element of uncertainty doesn't exist. But in, in poker, that's not the case, right? Like in a game like poker, um, there's lots of luck involved and there's a lot of hidden information. I can't see the opponent's cards. Um, and obviously I don't have control over what the dealer is going to deal next. So I could be like Pete Carroll in a situation where I can only lose if the queen of clubs hits on the last card. So that's a two percenter, just like what Pete Carroll had. And the queen of clubs can hit. I can't do anything about it. Um, and I have to try to sort of guess at what the other player has. So what that means actually, that's really interesting in poker is that, um, Les and I could actually be making both make great decisions in the hand, given what we know. But then one of us is going to win it, but it's not particularly telling for who made the better decisions. Whereas obviously in, in chess, that's not true. Like it, it's kind of chess is in some ways from the decision-making standpoint, more zero sum. If, if less makes good decisions, I have to make relatively bad ones and vice versa. So we can look at actually that Pete Carroll, Bill Belichick matchup there. And what we can come to the conclusion is that Pete Carroll made a great decision. He actually increased by one down the number of attempts he was going to get at the end zone, which is pretty amazing. Um, uh, you know, and he really increased his win probability by doing that. And that Bill Belichick also made a great decision to have this crazy thing in his back pocket that, that Pete Carroll wasn't expecting. And that's what makes it so interesting because you can't think about chess in that way, in, that, in, in the way that I just described. I think about it all the time because when I was a sportscaster, we had that old trope of, oh, it's going to be a chess match between Pete Carroll and Bill Belichick. And now I'm like, oh, that's actually not true. I saw it the other night on one of the primetime football games. They put up a graphic chess match between these two people. And I was like, oh, Annie wouldn't like that because it's no. not chess, it's poker. There's luck. And this is what I see, Annie, which I know you will love, which will kind of take us into the next um, phase of this when it, when it talks about Rams football is we'll win a game and you know, you have a certain feeling about how it played out, but Les will always, or you lose a game. Les will always go back and tell me, well, I'll ask him, well, how did you think this happened? And how did you think this guy played? Or what did you think about this? And he'll, he'd be, he'll be like, I have to watch the film. And so what ends up happening is the wins, you end up finding things that, oh, well, we got lucky here. Um, and boy, if, you know, thankfully so-and-so didn't jump this route or in, in the losses, they inevitably make you feel better when you go back and watch the film, because you go back and see all these little moments where luck came into play where, oh, if that lineman hadn't, you know, accidentally tripped on the guy next to him, then so-and-so wouldn't have a hole to run through. So it's really interesting that you can also take the outcome and, judge the quality of you know your decisions the other direction well we just any we just ran into that on a very microscopic level uh we played the san francisco 49ers they beat us there was one particular play in the game where cooper cup one of our wide receivers was wide open and at that point we really needed a big play to spark us to to get us back into the fight and all we needed was one big play, and we're going to be back in the fight, and you never know what happens from there. And then he's – now he's wide open. He's going to score. We made that play against the uh, New York Giants, put the game away. Uh, but uh, Jared hooked the, the ball. It was an uncharacteristic misfire. But you really didn't know necessarily know why at that moment, right? The result's bad, and the emotions get to it. When you go back and watch the film, you see that a uh, – 
one of the 49ers rushers rushed our center and he pushed him to the ground. Jared had to step left toward our left tackle on I mean, Andrew Whitworth. And as he went to throw the football, he stepped on Andrew's foot and caused him to somehow go so that's off. That's just balance. bad luck. Yeah, that's bad luck. So the decision, all of that, everything's, but that's what, Kara, I'm trying to paint yeah. the picture of, so- wait a minute. Everything worked out. We probably could have scored, might have gotten in the game. You never oh, – bad luck. And that is – such as football in life, right? Yeah. So – but the, I want to key in on something Kara said because I think it was so it, – it's, it's a really important point that really kind of separates the great from the good. And that's – so we can think about the relationship between decision quality and outcome quality as a two-by-two. Two. Um. Uh, so this is actually, this two by two is like in the first chapter of how to decide. But so you have good decision, like the decision quality, good or bad. That would be like on the left. And then the outcome quality, good or bad. So we can think about like, um, you make a good decision, you get a good outcome. That would be earned reward. You make a good decision, you get a bad outcome. Um, that would be like bad luck, right? Um like what, what happened, right? You step on the foot of somebody, like who, how can you, what are you gonna do? Um, get a bad outcome, but the decision-making was fine. Um, you get a bad decision, you have a good outcome, let's call that dumb luck, and then you have a bad decision, you make a bad outcome, let's call that just desserts, um, like just what you deserve. So, so here's what, what I wanna key in on what you said. It's how are you looking at the wins and the losses? So we know that we have this intuition going, which isn't great, right? Which is like the losses are like, ah, we must, everything was bad and the fans are pissed off and, that, you know, Pete Carroll's an idiot. Um, and then you have the wins where, where you get the other side, which is like, uh, you know, Doug Peterson is a genius for running the Philly special. Like, I don't know if he is. I mean, I imagine it was probably a pretty good decision. So it's probably a good decision that, that was a good outcome. I know going for it was a good decision because you don't want to go up by six. You want to cross seven. I don't know if passing it to Nick Foles, but specifically in the end zone, that's above my pay grade. Um, but it's probably, it was a good decision. So, you know, good decision, good outcome. That's like, yay, he earned that reward. He's great. And you can see that opposition there between him and Pete Carroll. But this is what I think is really interesting, is that what you said was, when you go back and look at the tape, this idea of I don't know until I look at the tape, and you're looking at those wins and you're seeing, wait, no, that we actually got lucky there. That wasn't actually a great, a great decision. That's actually really unusual. Like that really is what separates the greats from the goods. And the reason is that we have this, like it's asymmetric how much we're willing to really dig in and critique and look at those losses than it is when we're digging in and critiquing and looking at the wins for what are the mistakes? What are the things that we actually did well that we'd want to repeat? But what are all the things we did wrong? And this is where you get to elite is when you're looking at those wins and you're willing to dig around and say, what did we do wrong? And that's particularly true when you're willing to look in that earned reward category that we made pretty good decisions and we got a good outcome, but maybe there was a better way. Maybe there was a different pattern we could have run. Maybe there was something else we could have done that would have increased our win probability just just a little bit more, even though what we did was good but maybe there was a better way. And the reason why I think this asymmetry occurs is it has to do with like, how, what are we thinking about as we reflect on our decisions in terms of our own identities? So if I, ha- if I lost, if it didn't work out, I'm sad. My identity is kind of under attack, right? Like I'm not feeling very good. 
So if I examine my bad outcomes, because I already feel bad, I now have an escape route out of this bad feeling. And that escape route is luck. That escape route is, oh, I got a bad outcome, but actually it turns out it was kind of bad luck. So it wasn't my fault. It'll, it's like this identity protection that can happen. So it's like you can't, things can't get much worse. Like if you already lost, you're pretty sad. So you, it, it, they can't be, you can't get much worse than like going in and looking. And, and then maybe you get to find out it was luck. But obviously the opposite is not true. When I win, I'm feeling pretty good. <laughs> I'm like, look at me. My identity is feeling excellent today. I have like a totally positive self-narrative going right now. So what is to be gained for me in the short run from looking at the wins and trying to find the errors? From looking at the wins and trying to find out the places where actually that was a stupid decision. We just got super lucky. Yay. Like, whoa. Right? From a short-term perspective, there's not a lot to be gained from that because I, I don't want to escape the room now. Right? Like, I, I don't want that. I don't oh, it was want all to under your it. control. It had nothing to do with luck. It was just right, exactly. all your great decision-making. Now, obviously, in the long run, there's a ton to be gained from that. Right? Like, I hardly think that you would want to be playing like the 1975 Steelers right now, right? Even though in the 70s, they were like dominant, right? And comparatively, they were amazing. But you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to be playing like that because there's better ways to do it. We've, we've discovered all sorts of better ways to do it. Um, you know, some of the stuff is the same, but a lot of it is now different. I mean, if it's not just like what are the training methods and what do we know about nutrition and those kinds of things. So you could think about yourself as I don't want to be stuck in the seventies. Right. And the only way that I can do that is if I'm willing to go and explore the stuff that's working out and examine that to, to specifically like, what are the errors? What are the ways that I could innovate off that? What are the things that I could be doing better? But most people aren't willing to do that. So there's all sorts of people who are good, right? They're getting good results. Their decision making is pretty good, but the ones that are great, the truly elite, are the ones who live in that quadrant, who live in the, in the total, complete, single-mindedness about finding errors no matter, because there's always yeah. a better way. That's, you make a great point. And I, when I first read Thinking in Bets, and, and I was probably one of those readers that there were certain parts of the book, you're like, okay, we were intuitively doing some of this, but didn't necessarily, we probably couldn't have written a book about it, articulated it, but your book enlightened us on this new framework. And now we can just take it to a new level and improve it. But right in, in, in football, you have to do it microscopically week by week, right? You could play really well and lose because you played a good team and, and a bounce didn't go your way, play really well and win. But like you said, there's some errors you made and you better correct those. But when we've, when we interviewed Sean McVay to be our head coach at that point in time, he's 30 years old. He made a very interesting point that resonated with us on the interview team was like a lot of coaches, you, you, you like to scout the other team, maybe know if uh, coach Belichick has that Malcolm Butler play in the playbook or not. That takes a lot of work. There's, you know, there's technology that can break things down amazingly and have tendencies. But one of the things that uh, resonated with us with Sean was he talked about doing that same, doing the same approach to his self 
as a play caller, right, to make sure he knew what the enemy knew about him. So very similar, you know, in in what you were talking about, win or loss, look at look at yourself and, and make sure, right, you, you know that if you got lucky, you're not, the luck's going to run out and you can't keep doing the same thing. So I, I think that's very, very important uh, in football because it's, each game is such an emotional toll because there's, there's only 16 of them and you have a week to either get over a loss or, or get over a win and, and figure out what to do next. And then also it happens in the off season when if you had a successful season, but maybe you were, maybe you were 10 and six, but four games you won by a field goal or less. And most of those games were lucky, right? The other team's quarterback stepped on a foot per se, but they were wide open. Had it not been bad luck, they win the game. So that's when you also have to step back and go, okay, we have work to do. We're not, we haven't arrived yet. So, Well, it's also interesting too, because you're always operating when you're in a football season with incomplete information, as are you in life. But at the beginning of the season, you still have the thought about, okay, who was this team last year? We assume that this particular team is going to be good because they were good last year and we play them early and we beat them, and so we're feeling good about ourselves. And then only after the season is over do you find out, well, wait a minute, as the season shaked out, they ended up not being that good of a football team, but we over-attributed you know, how good we were based on what we thought about them, but we didn't have the complete season yet. We didn't know the outcome of how things were going to go. So, I mean, there were so many things in Thinking in Bets, and now Annie's new book, which is fantastic, How to Decide – um, that will help you not only as a football fan get over yourself in your your tribe that you're a part of and start thinking a little bit more critically about particular calls, but with your before life before you go on the, it's in my in my in my phone as a reminder, right? The scenario uh, that you just described is is I have these very important reminders, right? That always remember these, especially when your amygdala is in control. Right. That may be. So you're just reacting instead of thinking. That's when you're feeling good about yourself for right. The positive result or feeling very bad about yourself for the negative result, both in season and off season. But there's these reminders and your book played a huge part of it to go, okay, that what you just described, we got to make sure we do and we do it this year and next year we do it better. And then as we get more experience, the next year we even do it better. So that's one way you're impacting the Rams. And I think, Annie, as we go and look, let's start looking through, because I think this is what's going to maybe Rams fans would like the best, is kind of we're going to go through your your process. And, and Annie, you talk about process and how important it is. Obviously, it's it's woven all through these two books, making sure you have a good decision-making process. So we're going to talk about your process for getting ready for the draft. And I remember thinking, my goodness, how can they spend so much time? They have the entire months of November and December, Annie, that they will sit less in all of his uh, top decision-making scouts and, and, you know, head guys will sit in the room and go through every single player using this process that's taken, really, it's still evolving, eight plus years to develop, and they sort them. Every single draft eligible player is sorted and they spend all the time in their meetings doing that so that when they get to the draft day, the decision, as you always say, is easy. And I'm always like, really, it's easy. And you're like, yeah, because we went through 
this process. And I knew when he said that, I said, oh, that's Annie in a nutshell, right? If you do all of this sorting for whatever decision you have to make, then when you, the decision time comes, it should be fairly easy because it's obvious. It's right in front of you. You've, you've done a good job of making sure you've, you've put a, a value on it. Yeah. So, yeah. So to that point, I think one of the things that we need to realize, I'm going to pick up on the language that you just put out there is that there's a really big difference between sorting and picking. So essentially where, where we can really get a lot of an, a big increase in our accuracy and the quality of the outcomes that we get is in the sorting part of things. So what do I mean about the sorting part of things? You figure out where your goals are. It might be like, what are the positions that we really need to make sure that we're drafting into? Um, you know, where, how are we thinking about what the composition of the team might be? And as we're thinking about bringing in younger talent, what, what are the places that we're trying to fill in? Right. So you do you understand that. So you have some goals, right? Um, and, you know, obviously you're thinking about how are they going to fit into our schemes, you know, so on and so forth. Right. So, so you have some idea of what are the goals? What are the criteria? What are the things that we're trying? What are the types of players even that we have as Rams players? Cause there's a, like an identity right. as a Rams player, right? Exactly. And you, sorry, go ahead. Oh, what, what's interesting in the, in the sorting process too, and, and we'll take it step by step, but technically the sorting process for the, for the draft really begins before the current draft. But for simplicity's sake, if the current draft is end of April, we start it in May. One of the important parts about the, the sorting process of a draft too is initially just getting a, a feel for the landscape of the draft that every position, whether you need that position or whether that player is a scheme fit or not, because right. what not every draft is the same it just, Hey, certain players are what happened to be born at certain years. And one may come out as a registered sophomore, the other may come out as a senior. So you never, but what you want to be able to do is know the landscape that way, you know, the depth of the draft, what right. other teams made, and it allows you to maneuver in the draft. So it's interesting. The first part of it is just figuring out whether we need the position or their scheme fits or not. Right. The, the sort, the levels of talent in the draft, and that'll help right. us. As and we, we go we through the process, talk more but about we, like how you might think about that particular process. Yeah, but keep going. Well, we'll we'll get into that. We'll get into the weeds on that, hopefully, because that's like a really fun topic. But basically, so with the sorting, just sort of generally, you're saying like, here's 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 my goal. I'm trying to judge whether this person is going to be a, a help help me to achieve that goal, and here are the things, the individual like subjective judgments that would go into me being able to make that determination. Are they going to meet a certain threshold or not? Okay, so so that's the sorting process. But now where people really get hung up is on the picking part. So once we've sorted our options, then presumably they've meet they've met a threshold. Right? These these are people who we would like to draft or not like to draft. And this is the problem that we get into and why you want to be able to do this well is that we have, we fool ourselves into thinking that like with enough data, we'd somehow be able to distinguish between the two players. But the thing is that once they've sort of passed that sorting process, once they've met a particular threshold, it's actually quite hard to distinguish between the two because you can't really know until they're like on your team. Right. Um, and there's a whole bunch of stuff you don't know. Like, for example, you can't know if they're going to have an injury the next year. You'd need a, 
a, a, you know, some sort of crystal ball for that. Now you could in your sorting process in, include some estimation of how injury prone they are. Right. Right. But even so you don't know if they're going to get know. injured. Right. And I think that what happens is because of the resulting thing, be, we think of mistakes as having a bad outcome. That's what we think a mistake is. And it's not right. A mistake is not doing good sorting. That, that's a mistake not using the information that's available to you, not having a good process. But we think a mistake is, is doing bad, is, is actually getting a bad outcome. It's kind of what the fans think a mistake is, getting a bad outcome. Bad GMs, they might think a mistake is getting a bad outcome, not you less. Um, and so what happens is that we become very defensive against that. And so what we want to do is once we've got, a, a, you know, a couple of players that we're considering for a particular position or a particular draft, you know, a particular place in the draft, that would satisfy, that would be okay, you know, that we, we've already met that threshold. We now spin our wheels trying to parse the differences between those two. I think because we feel like, oh, if we could just figure it out, maybe then we wouldn't get a bad outcome. But you have to realize that you can't control that part of the process. So once you get to the picking stage, you could, that's where you can like, I'll go with my gut or I'll flip a coin or if they happen to be available, you know, I'll, I'll just pick them. Um, because you can think about this thing, what I call the only option test, which is just this thresholding thing. If I've got player A or player B, and I'm trying to decide between the two of them, and I say, if player A were the only person I could draft in this position, would I be like super happy or would I be sad and want to go look for more options? And if the answer is no, like I'd be happy, I wouldn't necessarily go look for anybody else. It'd be great. I'd totally bring them onto the team. Yay. Right. Um, and then you ask the same question about player B, and you're like, yeah, no, if player B were the only one that were available, I wouldn't go look for anybody else because I would think that they would be great you're pretty much done because everything yes. else is stuff that you kind of can't know. Well, it, it's, it's, it's a perfect, perfect analogy for draft day because I've heard last, I was lucky enough because of um, our circumstances and quarantine that I was in the draft room, which was in the bunk room of our house uh, this year. So I got to sit through the whole draft and I wish you had been there because you would have loved to have seen how the sorting turn to picking and it's under time pressure. So you've already done all the work though, to your point. Right. And there may be a time where, you know, I would hear less say, well, you know, if, if the only person that we have left at this particular pick is this guy, then we're going to trade back. Right. Because using your only option test, like, yeah, that doesn't fit that yeah, like back, that right, less So let's trade yeah. back, and and maybe if it's five, ten yeah, picks yeah. later, that it that, that it that it works. Or the coin flip, where the the hard decision is actually an easy decision. I was fascinated because he's you know you're picking between you know m multiple potential players, but let's just say you have it down to two guys, and Les will just I heard him say to Sean, "Well, let hey, just go with your gut. Which one you want?" And I'm like, "These are two people. How can it be that you're just gonna you know do that at this point?" And Les said exactly that, right? Like, because the process got us here and they were so close, a hard decision, as you say, and how to decide is actually an easy decision. Well, it, it's interesting when this, and I was, I was developed mentored by someone who came from the Patriots, but a lot of times when we see the draft, and especially how it's covered in the media, right? There's this, I call it a vertical stack, Right. And player A may be here and then player B is really. So it's, let's just say it's number three and four on your board, right? Uh, right. And, and you see that all the time, how the draft is covered. Ooh, they they reached, right? And that may be because the 
let's call it the speculation is one player was ranked 10th and the other one was ranked 14th, but really is, is four spots. So there's oftentimes in, in your books been able to articulate, I'll go, look, I'm not smart enough to figure out these players, but what we do is we have this horizontal board, not vertical by, okay, let's, let's just keep it simple. We have these, let's just say we have one, a one through five kind of level. You want to make sure you get the players in, in the one levels, the two levels, the three levels. And then from there, right. How do we know if there's five players in the one level, really, which one of those five are, we're we're saying they're at the one level, right? So. Right. That's the perfect example of sorting, right. right? As opposed to worrying about the picking part is that you're creating buckets Pods, pods. pods. I call them call. pods, but we call them buckets too. So I'm glad to yeah, see so uh, that. So, well, because I think about sorting. No, no, we're going buckets. buckets. We're recording this and this will be played in the draft room. Buckets. <laughs> we go. call them buckets. So, so you create buckets, right? And it's like, here's this, or baskets or pods, whatever. Here's a basket or a bucket of players, which, you know, I mean, I don't really, I'm not going to fool myself that I can f- distinguish between number 10 and 14. Like, I, I don't know. And by the way, even when they're ranking them, the people ranking them are thinking them as, a, as of them as a generic player, right? They're not they're not ranking them as is it ten or is this person fourteen or ten for the Rams, right? Because that that right. could be different as well. So, but there's all these other factors, and so what you want to do is just get. I love that you have those horizontal that you're thinking about horizontally instead of vertically. It's like okay, all these all of these players, like I'm not going to fool myself that I can somehow distinguish among them. I just know that they belong in the top pod or the top basket or the top right. bucket. Uh, and then once I'm sort of in there, I know that I'm not going to go wrong either way. Like they're probably going to, I'm probably not going to go wrong either way, just in terms of like expected value, like how, how good are they expected to be? And all anybody needs to do is like step back and do the thought experiment, right? Which is, are you going to say that any team that's ever taken the first round draft pick where they've drafted a player, you know, top number one in the first round, the top draft pick that hasn't worked out that they were stupid for drafting that person. Well, like, of course not. That's the wrong way to judge a mistake. It's that even when you're taking the top pick, the number one pick, they still have some probability of not, not being great and some probability of being mediocre and some probability of being amazing. And then you can complicate it and say, they have some probability of being mediocre on your team. And then you trade them away and they're a superstar on another team. And that could just have to do with fit or, you know, how do they fit in with the team or how do they get along with the coach or like all these things that it's impossible for you to be able to predict. So the best that you can do is say, when I take someone as the top picked in in the draft and probably there's, as you say, there's probably not much difference between like one through, I don't know, you can tell me like maybe pretty wide band. Um, right. What you're saying is that when I think about those different possible outcomes, like total dud, you know, injury, uh, mediocre superstar on our team, that those probabilities, as I think about forecasting the probability of those those different bins, right, those different outcomes, that they look pretty the same. And can I tell that one person's going to have a 20 and a half percent of being a superstar and another one's going to have a 21 percent chance of being a superstar well if you think you can you're lying to yourself and i think we would have been lying to ourselves if we thought we could fit 
a conversation with Annie Duke into one part. So we're going to have a second part of our conversation with Annie, and we're going to talk more about how the decision-making strategies that she outlines and studies have made their way into the Rams draft room. So look for that episode coming soon. 